0: ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings and welcome to ID the Future. I'm Casey Leskin, and today I'm speaking with Michael Behe, a senior fellow at Discovery Institute and professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University with a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. He's the author of many books you've probably heard of and read, including Darwin's Black Box, Edge of Evolution, and Darwin Devolves. And we're here today to discuss his contributions to a new book released in October of 2021 titled The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, Exploring the Ultimate Questions about Life and the Cosmos. So, Dr. Behe, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. Yeah, thanks, Casey. It's always great to be with you. Well, we want to talk to you, Dr. Behe, but I'm not going to lie. One of the reasons for doing this podcast is to do some shameless promotion of this book that's coming out, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. And we really appreciated your contribution to that book. It was titled, How Does Irreducible Complexity Challenge Darwinism? The book is being published by Harvest House. I'm a co-editor along with William Dembski and Joseph Holden, and we certainly hope that you will check it out. So maybe we can jump right into a conversation about your chapter in the book. So- Dr. Behe, when Darwin wrote "Origin of Species," how did he view the cell, and did he have an appreciation of the complexity
1: of the cell? Uh, no, that's a key question. Back in Darwin's day, in the middle of the 1800s, nobody knew what the cell really was. It, it seemed to be this little mysterious organism could move and it could do things like divide, but nobody knew what it was, and so folks thought that it was filled with a relatively simple substance that they dubbed protoplasm. And back in that time, molecules, which we now know run the cell in the form of proteins and nucleic acids, were theoretical entities. Nobody even knew that they existed. So the very foundation of life was unknown in Darwin's time.
0: I'm sure that Darwin and his contemporaries can be forgiven for not having a very accurate or advanced understanding of the cell. They were using the tools that were available to them at the time and the best science that they were able to figure out. But how about in the 1930s? That's when the neo-Darwinian synthesis was first constructed, which is basically the model of evolution that governs biology today. Was the cell's complexity appreciated at that time
1: when they came up with the neo-Darwinian synthesis? Well, that's a good question, too you're right that it's not Darwin's fault or anybody back then that they didn't know what the cell was like. It takes a lot of sophisticated equipment to figure that out. And as a matter of fact, even 70 years later, when a man named Ronald Fisher wrote a book, which eventually led to something called the Neo-Darwinian synthesis, they were still very, very much in the dark about the contents of the cell, about how it ran. For example, Nobody knew what proteins looked like. Nobody knew what the role of DNA was. Some people thought it was a simple structural material, and that maybe protein somehow contributed to genetic material. Nobody knew what a gene was. And that's, of course, a, a big problem if you're proposing a theory of evolution, which depends on the genetic material, and you don't know what, what it is. So uh, even back then, even 70 years after Darwin, the scientists were pretty much in the dark about how the basis of life worked. That's really quite incredible, Dr. Behe, that
0: even at the time that the Neo-Darwinian synthesis was constructed, I mean, we didn't have a good understanding of what DNA is doing or the basic molecular machinery of the cell. So when did biologists begin to appreciate the complexity of the cell and what were some of the technical methods that they used in the early days, at least, to make some of these discoveries?
1: Well, it wasn't until after World War II that experiments probing the molecular foundation of life really got started. But I should pause a second and say that back in 1930, there was this guy, Ronald Fisher, who was a math, uh, mathematically inclined biologist. And he kind of said, well, well, genes are something. So if you have two different kinds of genes for a trait, say blue eyes and brown eyes, and say, regular hemoglobin and sickle hemoglobin, then you can have two times two combinations of that. And since you can have thousands of genes, you can have two to that, that power of combinations. And so he thought that there was just an enormous amount of variation that might allow natural selection to work. But it turns out that didn't pan out. And yeah, uh, when folks studied the molecular basis of life, that became much clearer. Yeah. In the 19, late 1940s, it was discovered that DNA, not proteins, was the carrier of genetic information. And then in the early 50s, uh, Watson and Crick discovered the double helical shape of DNA, and saw that it carried information. And Francis Crick proposed that there was a code that connected the sequence of units in DNA to the sequence of units in proteins. And the first protein's shape was discovered by something called X-ray crystallography. One in particular was called myoglobin. And there's a famous quote from one of the folks who worked on that, he wrote about the structure of myoglobin, and he said, "Could the search for ultimate truth really reveal such a hideous object?" and uh, <laughs> so it, it went, and the proteins were not you know nice symmetric molecules like DNA. you know they looked like bowels or intestines, and so it didn't didn't seem very pretty. But the thing is that proteins are machines, and if you look at your lawnmower, if you look at the engine in there it it's not aesthetically pleasing, but it has a job to do and the shape allows it to do its job. And then after that, new techniques were invented that allowed scientists to actually chemically synthesize pieces of DNA and pieces of protein and determine the sequences of them. And more and more and more techniques were developed. And the more techniques that are available, the more and faster research can can probe. And so we're really living in a golden age of scientific discovery and biology. So I just want to get one thing straight from you, Dr. Behe.
0: You're saying that the reigning paradigm of biological origins, neo-Darwinism, was constructed and adopted at a time when we didn't even understand how DNA worked. We didn't even understand that there were molecular machines in the cell and we didn't even understand the complexity of these enzymes and these proteins and how they all fit together and, and make the cell function. This was all ha- done before we had basically any modern understanding of how the cell works.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so it was built on a foundation of really total ignorance. And it was an interesting idea uh, at the time, even even when Darwin first proposed it, it had problems, but it's, it's gotten really very <laughs> clearly uh, uh, incorrect as more and more knowledge has accumulated. I I should add that the situation reminds me of a routine that the comedian Steve Martin used to do. And he said (laughs) that, you know, back in the day, People used to think, physicians used to think that sickness was caused by gremlins that would come in and manipulate your organs. And, and he laughed, he goes, ha, 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 ha. But now we know it's, it's really gnomes. Gnomes come in and do that. <laughs> Well, back in Darwin's day, you know, through no fault of their own, they were talking about gnomes and gremlins in our modern parlance. <laughs>
0: So this is really outdated science that governed biology at the time that Neo-Darwinism was constructed. I think it's time for an update. Uh, One little factoid that you may already be aware of, Dr. Behe, but talking about some of the early days of studying protein structure and how they would use X-ray crystallography, one of the pioneers of X-ray crystallography was actually a Darwin skeptic named Lyle Jensen, who we had on this podcast years ago. He helped determine the structure of rubredoxin, and he became a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And he retired uh, quite a few years ago and actually passed away as well about a little over 10 years ago. But he was a major Darwin skeptic, and he was one of the pioneers of the field of x-ray crystallography beginning to help biology understand the complexity of enzymes. And it was that work in large part, that led him to be a Darwin skeptic. And we had a whole podcast series with him many years ago. Maybe we'll have to dig it out of the archives so our our listeners can hear it.
1: Yeah, I'd I'd like to hear it myself. I hadn't known that. But yeah, it's, it's, it's actually amazing that back in the 50s, when the genetic code was first discovered and the intricate natures of proteins, the biological community already had more than enough evidence to see that Darwin's idea wasn't going to pan out. But there was just so much intellectual inertia behind it that everybody in academia already thought of it, and they couldn't think of anything else that had palatable consequences. And so it just kind of drifted along by its own weight. Well, let's change tack a
0: little bit here and move into the 21st century. So what is irreducible complexity?
1: What is this idea and how do you define that? Well, it's a, it's a fancy phrase, but it just stands for something simple. It just means that you've got a machine or some sort of system that has a number of parts to it. And all the parts interact with each other and perform a function, but you need them all. If you take away one or another, then the system doesn't work. And I talked about such a thing way back in the day in 1996, when I wrote the book Darwin's Black Box. And as an example from our everyday world, I pointed to a mechanical mousetrap. Mousetrap has a spring and a hammer and other metal elements in a wooden base and so on. Turns out if you take one of them away, the mousetrap is broken. It's not that it works less well, it's, it's, it's broken. And uh, it's hard to imagine how such a thing could be built up by tiny, incremental, helpful steps like Darwin said his theory needed. And it turns out that when you think about it, pretty much all machines are like that. Machines pretty much by definition have different parts that interact to do some job. We see that in our everyday lives. And so since it's been discovered by modern science that the cell is run by complicated, elegant molecular machines... That same problem of how could you build something gradually, that is a machine, that has uh, come down with force on Darwin's uh, theory as well. So viruses are a very hot topic these days for
0: obvious reasons. And in your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith, you discuss the bacteriophage, which I was really excited about because you ultimately argue that the bacteriophage is eerily complex. And I thought this was sort of a new argument you were making for irreducible complexity. So can you describe, and maybe you've made it before and I just missed it. So I apologize. That's Maybe that's the case. I was away in South Africa for a few years, so maybe <sighs> I can be forgiven. But can you describe some of the complexity of the bacteriophage?
1: And in your view, why would you say that it is irreducibly complex? Well, it's interesting. Uh, as I said, the cell is filled with molecular machinery, but some is more photogenic than others. So it's better to get a point across to the general public. But this virus, which is called a bacteriophage because it infects bacteria, is called T4. And it's really, it looks like a moon lander. It's got these legs that help stabilize it on the surface. And on the top, it has this compartment, which is empty. And that's where the DNA of the bacteriophage is stored. And then coming down from the head, down towards the legs, is a hollow tube. And there are mechanisms that when the legs touch a cell, it triggers the tube to contract, and it squishes down, and that motion does two things. It penetrates the membrane of the cell, and it injects the DNA from the head into the cell. Now, if you think about it, all of those parts are focused on one goal, and that's getting the DNA into a cell. You know, the legs by themselves wouldn't do anything. The tube by itself wouldn't do anything because if it wasn't attached to the head, there would be no DNA. The head uh, by itself couldn't inject DNA into a cell. And so it's, it's just one more example of irreducible complexity. I actually uh, use this example because in the past 10, 20 years, there's been developed another new technique called cryo-electron microscopy, which is a very big improvement in the resolution of molecular images. And so there are now spectacular images and movies showing the very, very, very great number of details that are necessary for this machine to work. My description here is really a little cartoon version of what it would take to have that work. But as science progresses, its design just gets more and more obvious. Well, and you go into a
0: lot of detail about the bacteriophage, including diagrams within your chapter in the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. So I would really encourage our listeners to check that book out and read Dr. Behe's chapter. If you want to appreciate the complexity of this deadly, but amazing little molecular machine. Hopefully it won't spell the end of the world for us, these viruses, but we'll see. But yeah, so th- you should definitely check out the book to get the details on why the bacteriophage is irreducibly complex. So I just have one last question for you, Dr. Behe, and that is how do we go from irreducible complexity to intelligent design? How do we go from this moon lander type entity that we're finding inside of
1: living cells to intelligent design, how do we make that jump? Okay, that's a a great question. Uh, Many people have trouble with that. But it turns out that throughout history, the greatest thinkers of history thought that life was purposefully designed. They didn't have to see the bacteriophage T4 or the bacterial flagellum or other such things to conclude design we conclude that design occurs, purposeful, intelligent design, that a mind was involved in something, when we see that there have been a number of parts which are put into relationship with each other to perform a function, and what I call in shorthand a purposeful arrangement of parts. And the reason is is pretty simple, because Minds can have purposes. So, minds can take this piece over here and put it next to this piece here and screw on this piece there because that arrangement will do some helpful task. Of course, unintelligent nature doesn't have a purpose and so it can't arrange such things. So, whenever we see a purposeful arrangement of parts, such as we do in machinery, like a mousetrap or a lawnmower or, or something, then we can always conclude very strongly that it was designed. And now, unexpectedly, in the past 50 years, science itself has discovered molecular machines, really elegant machines that are much more sophisticated than anything we have produced ourselves, at the very foundation of life. And so, Uh, we are more than justified in concluding that uh, that machinery and that life was purposely designed. So you find all these
0: parts that are working together to contribute to a purpose that requires a mind to organize and orchestrate all of that complexity towards that end. I think it's a very compelling argument. And I can say, Dr. Behe, that when I was an undergraduate at UC San Diego and I read your book, Darwin's Black Box, it was really your work that convinced me that there was, was a fatal problem with the Darwinian model of evolution and that we needed to explore other options. So I really want to just thank you for the impact you made in my own thinking as an undergraduate and, and the work that you've done.
1: Yeah, thanks very much. I, it warms my heart when it, I find that my writing has changed somebody's mind. <laughs> well, I, I can certainly say I can speak for
0: myself that you had a big impact. And I would encourage folks, if you want to understand Dr. Behe's arguments to check out the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith. It's available on Amazon. It has contributions not just from Michael Behe, but from other leading ID theorists such as William Dembski, Stephen Meyer, Jay Richards, Douglas Axe, Jonathan Wells, Guillermo Gonzalez, Walter Bradley, Robert Marks, Brian Miller, myself, and many other folks. So check it out. It's probably one of the best volumes to get a broad yet concise and tight treatment of many of the issues related to intelligent design. I certainly hope you'll take a look at it. So Dr. Behe, thank you so much for coming and spending some time with us today on the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. I'm Casey Luskin with ID the Future. Thanks for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute
1: and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.